Hi again. In this episode of the podcast, Daimati and I continue to talk about the larger Amida scripture. Uh, more specifically, in this podcast, we examine the 48 vows that the Bodhisattva Dharmakara makes in the context of the scripture, and we explore some of the most important vows and also examine why there are so many inconsistencies in the text, looking at how the text has developed over time. Hope you enjoy the podcast. So, shall we get back to the, the larger sutra? Yeah, um, I'd, li- I'd like to look at some of the... Uh, <clears throat> um, some of the vows. Yeah. So, before we get on to the 48 vows, um, I guess I'd just like to make a, a couple of points. Uh, I mean, one of them is it seems to me that there are at least three different versions of the Bodhisattva vow in the Sukhavasi Sutra. Um, so you've got, there's a whole section where, first of all, um, Dharmakara, uh, the Bodhisattva or the would be Bodhisattva, is before Lokeshwara Raja. And he makes a series of vows, which more or less seem to me to be the Bodhisattva vow. And then after that, he goes off and practices a bit. And then he comes back and then he makes the 48 vows. Right. And then after that, there's another set of vows uh, as well, which, you know, again, seem more or less the same. And uh, I was quite struck by the fact that that there's well, so many different versions of the vows. And I guess I took that to mean that the text is probably a bit of an assemblage um, and uh, an additional versions of the vows have been added in at a later stage. And I suspect that the 48 vows is not the first version, um, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, that could be. And even the 48 vows themselves as well, it seems fairly clear that they were added to um, as uh, as time went on. So there weren't 48 to begin with. Um, they were gradually um, extended. Um, and it's interesting as well that Pure Land uh, Buddhism particularly focuses on the, the set of 48 vows rather than the other formulations of the Bodhisattva vow that are found in the Sutra, which they don't seem to focus on so much. Right. Um, so when I when I mentioned the third set of vows, there's a bit after the 48 vows where, um, at least in a version I'm looking at, it, it talks about the reformulation and confirmation of the vows. And so basically it just kind of repeats the vows, but in, a, in, a, in an abbreviated form, maybe in a slightly more poetic way. And that's that. And there is also as well, which I, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but in, in the second half of the sutra, um, there's a lot of descriptions about what the pure land is like and so on and so forth. Right. But also a lot of assertions made uh, that relate to or that can be seen as related to many of the 48 vows. So one way of reading the, the sutra is to argue that um, the vows are confirmed in the second part of the sutra, or at least many of them are. Um, so we see in the second part of the sutra the uh, uh, the fulfillment of the vows. Um, and in, in this version by Gomez, he identifies which paragraphs in the sutra apparently confirm 
which of the 48 vowels. Obviously, this is all interpretive, right, and was done afterwards, but it would seem that part of the uh, part of the interpretive um, tradition is to is to see in the second half of the sutra how many of the vows or which of the vows were fulfilled and which phrases confirm their fulfillment because obviously in the 48 vows as you know they're presented in a conditional manner um, right and then after that is made clear that uh Dhammakra did in fact gain enlightenment and therefore the vows are true and then later on there's various examples of showing how each or how many of the vows have been filled i'm not i, I doubt if all of them um are shown to be fulfilled but but many of them are uh, particularly the most important ones the um i yeah i was i was interested in in the uh, the the second half of this larger sutra at how really extensive the description of the bodhisattva is, but also how this kind of depiction of the world and what a terrible mess the world is in. Um, you know, the, the, the things that ordinary people do and, and all, of, all of the ways in which they are uh, um, corrupted and causing suffering to themselves. But I, I hadn't noticed at all the correlation between the vows and the uh, and the and the description of the bodhisattva. I I was really struck at how, in a way, the second half of the sutra read quite a bit like um, well a number of other sutras, Mahayana sutras, in sort of um, almost like the the Bhavana Krama which isn't really a sutra, it's a shastra, but I mean, sort of depicting the world, the suffering of the world and the corruptions of, of beings in the world. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's almost as if the first half of the, sut of the larger sutra didn't, didn't exist, as if they'd sort of forgotten all, all about those vows. Yeah. Um, you think uh, about sorry. the, the yeah. five evils or um, that part? It would be interesting to me to hear what Gomez has to say about particular passages in the second part and, and what, what they indicate, uh, how they correlate to the vows. Yeah, well, I, I think that you're particularly talking uh, in what you've just said about a section that comes later on the five evils. Right, yeah, exactly. And that part, I think, is considered to have been uh, a later addition, um, okay. possibly uh, even uh, added in, right. in China, uh, that part. Um, I can actually read you um, what Gomez says about that. He says, the passage on the five evils is part of the long interpol interpolation already mentioned. The passage has been the source of much theological debate among traditional exegetes. On the one hand, it can be understood as, as a description of the Buddha's role as savior or converter of living beings. On the other hand, it is evidently a moral tract and the tone cannot be understood otherwise than as an admonition and an injunction and therefore right. encouragement to effort in self-cultivation. Right. The passage, however, can be construed as stated that ease of practice is possible in the Pure Lands but not in our world system. 
In East Asia, both interpretations coexist in the notion that the passage refers to the last days or the degenerate days of the Buddhist Dharma, the period in which we live. Uh, so in other words, it's kind of interpreted as a kind of description of Mappo, I guess, though, those. Uh, right, uh, right. Yeah, yeah I, that, um, that articulates um, the, the kind of sense that I, I had of it, uh, that the tone of the five evils really does read very much, you know, it, it, it could easily be part of almost any number of other Mahayana sutras in which, in which you really are encouraging people because it, because it says, uh, even though it would be, even though it would be possible to, uh, to um, lead a righteous life in the pure land, how much more valuable it would be to do it in this world in which it's not the it's not the way that things are normally done. So I mean, if you're kind of going against the current of of society and leading a righteous life, it's much it's much more valuable than when you're in a pure land when it's a piece of cake, you know, to, to lead a virtuous life, right? Right. Yeah. So what you're saying is that, um, and I'm noticing now that in this section on the five evils, it seems to present more of the traditional self-power model. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That 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 was the, that was the feeling I I had as I was reading it. Is it said, what is this doing here? Was we're suddenly back in the realm of self-power? Yeah. It really felt that way, and and I, you know, it's interesting to hear. This is probably an interpolation. Yeah, I, I guess when we see a text of this type without knowing anything more about it, our tendency is going to be to assume that it forms a coherent whole uh, because it's one text. But particularly right. when we're uh, uh, linguistically distanced and historically distanced, we can't see that maybe the form in which it's written is completely different. You know, in other words, two different forms of Chinese or um, right. different language that belong to even different eras at times. Um, right. Difficult for us to see all of that. Right. And 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 also, I think this this is where I mean, people who really are expert in 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 reading Chinese translations of texts um, will have written will have read many many sutras, and and, and they may even recognize, a, you know, a possible source. I mean, that's what, what led Jan Natier to, to conclude that the, uh, the Heart Sutra was probably translated in, I mean, written in Chinese. Yeah. Um, kind based of, on... Yeah, kind of um, extracted, isn't it, wasn't it? Yeah, not so much written. Right. Because she says that it was extracted from the... Um, uh, the perfection of wisdom in was it twenty thousand lines? I think. Uh, yeah. And, and then it was top and tail with a story about Avalokiteshvara. Yeah. Right. Mm. Which yeah. And, yeah. And so it's 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 almost like a uh, um, well, Cliff's Notes. Uh, you know, <laughs> did do you have those? Uh, tell those, me what they are. Uh, Cliff's Notes. It, it's it's a uh, these are little study guides that are very common in in. Uh, High school students in this country, you know, if they have to read, um, you know, Bleak House or something like that, they will get the Cliff's Notes 
version, which sort of talks about the themes of Bleak House and then a little pamphlet that's about 30 pages long. So it saves you the pain of reading the entire novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, do, we did have that in the UK. I'm trying to remember what the equivalent was, whether it was Cliff's Notes or something else. Uh, but I remember having some of those, yeah. Right. And, and so, so, so I think it, um, it's been a long time since I've read Natty's article. You probably have read it more um, recently than I have. But um, yeah, I had the impression that it was a kind of a, a little bit like a, uh, a you know, to, to, to switch literary analogies, a, a Reader's Digest version of the, um, you know, and it was uh, of the Pragnaparamita that was then in, incorporated or became part of the, uh, yeah. part of the even the body of the Heart Sutra. Yeah, it'd be a bit more like, um, I don't know, like taking a Dickens novel, as you mentioned, and extracting the one key passage in it and then putting a frame around it and then saying this was, you know, another novel by Dickens or something like that. Right, right, right. Or, or, or maybe this were or even saying perhaps that this was what Dickens based the novel on. Um, right, yeah. right. Um, yeah. So she, from what I remember, she shows that the, the Chinese text of the uh, of the Heart Sutra is identical in, in, in terms of the kanji with a certain section of the Chinese translation of the Perfection of Wisdom uh, in 20,000 lines. Uh -huh. the, the only difference being uh, is uh, being that what has been added is the, the framing narrative about Avalokiteshvara, which is not found in any of the other perfect wisdom texts, as you know, and that, that's one of her other um, uh, arguments for indicating that she thinks it, it was actually extracted and framed in China and never had a Sanskrit original. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, from what I can remember, it seemed utterly compelling. Her, her argument seemed quite difficult to to resist. Yeah, I I, I was I was um, convinced by it. Um, she she was contributing to um, to the uh, listserv discussion group Buddha L um, when she was working on that, and and she she sent me a, a copy of of, of her. Uh, article I think is when it was when she was when it was being considered for publication and I remember just being really impressed at how how well it was argued and one one of the things that you know it, it didn't take an awful lot to persuade me um, that I remember reading the Sanskrit of you know because her, her argument is that the Sanskrit is actually translated from the Chinese yeah. she calls a back translation. And I remember reading the Sanskrit of that and thinking, gosh, this is just really not awfully idiomatic Sanskrit. It just doesn't feel like Sanskrit, you know? And, 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 and so it made a perfect, perfect sense to me that it was, it was a, a kind of a, not necessarily a clumsy translation, but maybe a, a bit of an overly literal translation from the Chinese. Um, yeah, I think this is this touches on a bit what we were talking about last week, uh, where we were talking about um, uh, 
um, cultural borrowing, if you like, or, or the direction in which um, Buddhism is transmitted. Uh, and uh, our, uh, our simplistic view is that the source was India and then things were taken up elsewhere. So if we encounter, in this case, the Heart Sutra in Chinese, of course we will assume that the equivalent text existed in India and then was translated into Chinese. Right. Uh, but as we were talking last time, very often what happens is, yes, something is transmitted to a new culture, but then that's developed or modified and that development is then transmitted back uh, right. to the, uh, the original culture. Yeah. And then hundreds of year, years later, people assume that it came from there, uh, which it didn't, you know, it came right. from there. So I, I suppose it's just another indication of how complex the process of transmission or uh, development of a uh, of a religious tradition is, you know, and it isn't just that it exists in one place and then they transmit it to another place. There's a lot of um, uh, uh, there's a lot of mutual borrowing or there's a lot of mutual influence. Let's say, yeah, right. Um, yeah, I mean, when 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 the you know the translators like Ijing and um, Xuanzang and and uh, Kumara Jiva, yeah. Well, so, I mean. Kumara Jiva is usually thought to have been a Central Asian person who knew both Sanskrit and Chinese. And maybe his mother language was something else altogether from both of those. But um, those Chinese pilgrims who were going back to, in, you know, going to India because they wanted to find out, you know, their assumption was, well, in India, they must be doing Buddhism exactly the way the Buddha told them to do it. And, and so they must have had influence on the people that they encountered because, you know, um, I Ching, when, when, when he was in China, was really surprised by a lot of what he saw there. It wasn't at all what he expected to see on the basis of the text that he read. And so if he, if he was um, communicating to the Indian, Indian people, I thought, I thought that you guys did this, you know. It, it could easily have had a, had a big influence on them. I mean, they might have said, "Oh, you know, we've really kind of deviated from the from the uh, teachings," and here's this Chinese person who's in touch with the teachings in a very pure form, and and maybe you know, maybe we're doing maybe we're doing things the wrong way, you know. It, it could easily have had an effect on them. Yeah, and I've, read, I've read a few books in the in the recent past. Um, in fact, one of these books on on Pure Land that I was reading um, uh, talks about the centrality of going for refuge. Uh, and I was thinking, oh, I wonder where they've got that from. You know, <laughs> and uh, uh, I, you know, I suspect that, for instance, Bante's emphasis on on the centrality of going for refuge has influenced other Buddhists to identify that as being what, what a Buddhist is. I, I'm sure that's true, because he, right. he certainly wasn't clear when he became a Buddhist, I don't think by any means. Um, and yeah, you, you hear it quite often now, uh, that yeah. from, from, Buddhist, from Tibetan Buddhists or from, from different places, they, 
they talk about a Buddhist as going for refuge to the three jewels. Right, right. Um, well, should we get back to the vows anyway? Because uh, you yeah. want to look at some of them. Um, I, in my reading, I mainly focused on this because I, I realized that I'd never really read them in a very thorough way before. And there's actually quite a lot to, to get to grips with, isn't there? Even just with the 48 vows. Right. Um, but one of the things that I noticed when I started reading uh, the list is that early on, we get a list of the five abhinyas. I don't know if you noticed that. So in my list from vows five to nine in, inclusive, we get the, the five supernormal powers um, being, you know, guaranteed. Uh, uh, right. But for anyone who gets born in, um, in the pure land. Um, so I thought that was interesting, the incorporation of a kind of traditional list if you like of um of attainments there. right yeah so 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 all, all of the people who are admitted into 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 his land shall they shall remember all their former lives yeah. not knowing uh at, knowing at least the events that occurred during the previous hundred thousand kotis of nayutas of kalpas yeah. <laughs> We're talking really astronomically huge numbers, hundreds of thousands of yeah. kotis of nayutas of, yeah. of kalpas. I mean, a kalpa by itself is a huge yeah. span of time. Have you heard of the story uh, Funes el Memoriosa? Um, uh, Funes, the, well, with a, with a great memory, basically. But this is a, this is a story by uh, Borges. Uh, and it's about this guy who falls off a horse, I think, and uh, has a, a very damaging accident. But one of the consequences is that he develops this incredible memory. And one of his, uh, one of the dimensions of his memory, one of the capacities of his memory, is that he can remember a day, any day, in absolute detail. However, it takes him as long as the time past to remember it so in other words to, to remember to remember all of the details of the previous day you'd have to spend the whole day remembering all of those details um, right and so i guess i'm mentioning that because the idea of you know remembering all of your past lives uh for hundreds of thousands of coaties of ages what have you um I, my sense is that would be quite a mixed blessing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to be so uh, to be to be so overwhelmed with so much memories or so many memories, and actually, in order to be able to pay attention to them, you'd have to spend all well, you'd have to spend all of your time doing that, basically. Right, right. Have you ever uh, seen interviews with people who have? who have total total recall there there is a it's a very rare thing but there are people who, who do this and and uh i've seen people like that interviewed and you know you know that you could just say uh, something like you know may 3rd uh, 1951 or something like that and they'd say oh, that was a tuesday and they can tell you that they what they had for breakfast and what they had for lunch and you know 
if they had a sandwich, you know, what, what kind of spread they had. They, they can remember all of that in total. Of course, a lot of that would probably be completely untestable. You couldn't possibly know whether that memory was accurate. But yeah. on the ones that, are, that, that can be verified, like remembering what day of the week it was, it can be tested, you know. There is a condition called uh, hyper, something like hypermemory syndrome, uh, uh, which is very rare, apparently, uh, where people can remember, yeah, all of the details of their life. Right. Um, but it's not generally regarded as a blessing. No. So I, I was reading this article about this Australian woman, a youngish woman who has this incredible memory. And basically, she she finds it very difficult to sleep yeah uh, because just memories float up at any given time and obviously that's not just good memories it's it's all of the things um, right and i think the article is even arguing that the fact that we have the capacity to forget things is actually very useful to us um because uh, well for various reasons one is that it can enable us to maybe leave behind traumas Right. The other one is to do with remembering the things that are important uh, rather than remembering every single detail. Uh, right. And uh, yeah, she certainly made it clear that her capacity to remember every single detail was no, by no means a blessing uh, for her. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could easily imagine that. I mean, supposing she went to, uh, to a concert and, and, and heard... Um, you know, the second Brandenburg concerto and wants to remember it. Well, it could be that the person next to her ruffled, you know, rustled some papers or <laughs> dropped a cufflink on the floor, which would be part of her memory of this Brandenburg concerto. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's true that Emerson, Emerson actually has a, uh, there's a word that he, that he uses that's um, it's a Greek word that, that means a kind of loss of memory. Is that which is aletheia? Is it? Hmm? Um, aletheia. No, yeah. that's that's truth. Uh, or, uh, uh, un unveiling. It's something like leth lethos. Um, okay. Let me see. Yeah. Oh, like the river. Right. Right. Um, yeah, but it's, so it's related because it's the opposite. That's why I made the mistake, right? Um, right. Aletheia comes from lethe, right, which is the river, you know, and the, right. and the river is the river of forgetting, isn't it? Right. Um, yeah, le lethe is, or lethe, depending on how it's pronounced. Yeah, oblivion or forgetfulness. And, and how, is it, how is it spelled? Uh, that's L-E-T-H-E. -E. Oh, okay, that's it, that's it, yeah. yeah. And as I mentioned, it, yeah, it is the river, the river of forgetfulness. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and uh, you know, Emerson has mentions that in a couple of his of his uh, of his essays as as a as a gift. I mean, you know, it, you know, this it's nothing could be better than to be able to forget certain things. It's interesting, isn't it? We we normally associate forgetting as a loss, don't we? And uh, I think often. And we would like to be able to remember things, but uh, right. as you say, or as Emerson says, some things 
it would be better for us to forget them and not keep replaying them in our minds. We, we, we need to move on. Um, so I guess all this is a way of saying, at least I'm wondering uh, how useful it would be <laughs> to be able to remember all of your past lives for hundreds of thousands of coaties of cosmic ages. And why right. is that seen as a merit? You know, why is that seen as a, uh, as a positive fruit? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, suppose, I suppose, you know, perhaps the answer to that is that, let's face it, life in the pure land is not quite the same as it is here in the Sahaloka. So maybe, maybe when you're no longer in the Sahaloka, this is a, uh, this is a, this is a, a blessing, partly because it seems to be that even though getting into the pure land is, is a gift as a result of the fulfillment of these vows, there does seem to be quite a bit of emphasis on being able to develop their skills that you could use to return to the Saha Loka to help people out. Right. Maybe maybe this is, you know, like like the Abhinyas, I mean, as you were saying, that, that this is one that could could help you out if you came across some somebody who was in distress because of a long karmic entanglement that you could then immediately see um, and maybe do something about. I'm not sure. Mm. And another one of the um, capacities mentioned is the capacity to see into the minds of others, which seems right. to be like a kind of a terrifying prospect, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> imagine that you can suddenly uh, grasp what anyone is thinking at any given time. And I mean, the chaos, the chaos of that, you know, the, right. uh, every little flash of nonsense that appears in someone's mind uh, or maybe it doesn't mean that but um it, it would make shopping in the market very very complicated wouldn't it yeah being being in a crowd of people if you could simultaneously know what all of them were thinking yeah 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 the, being able to, to to see the the mentalities of others and being able to to knowing the thoughts of others at least those of all sentient beings living in the hundred thousand kotis of nayutas of Buddha lands. Right. Well, that does yeah. place a certain limit on it. You're just. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a couple that seem interesting to me. Uh, the divine ear, at least as, um, as described here, is having the capacity to hear what hundreds of thousands of millions of trillions of Buddhas are preaching. Right. Um, which, wow, that sounds pretty amazing. Um, so I suppose it's kind of talking about a certain kind of sensitivity, maybe, to, to right. honor. Um, that seems quite interesting, at least if not taken completely literally. But also, uh, I think one that's always um, uh, 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 interested me, because it comes out in other places, like in, in the boomies, uh, the capacity to travel to hundreds of thousands of millions of trillions of other Buddha lands, um, yeah often at the same time, I think, it even comes out of it. Um, yeah. Um, would, would seem pretty spectacular. Yeah, so at least by location, if not multi-location, multi seems to be one of, the, uh, one of the features of living in the pure land that you can be, sounds like you, know, you can be several places at once, which again could be confusing, I suppose. Yeah. 
I was also interested, there's what one of the vows says that the beings are neither beautiful or ugly. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking, oh, okay, so what is what are they like then? So that well, right. we, we know that the the colour of gold, which which seems quite strange in itself, uh, yeah. the colour of gold, but then they're neither beautiful nor ugly. Yeah, right. Yeah, you you you'd think that that having a, a golden complexion would be normally seen as as a beautiful thing. Yeah, that 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 really was. That really was quite striking. Um, but they're all the same in appearance, uh, uh, it says, which I don't, I don't know whether that means literally like they have the same physical appearance like uh, clones uh, or or, the, or they, there's a feature that they all share, such as that they've all got the, the colour of gold. I, I must, must say this morning I was having this kind of sort of dystopian kind of... Um, fantasy you know about that all, all the beings in the pure land would be like <laughs> golden robots or something you know right, right. <laughs> yeah it's quite um strange some of this imagery isn't it because we've got this whole series of vows here that apparently communicate um attractive values and many of them at least that we've read so far don't seem to me to be on the set surface particularly attractive i suppose with some of them like being the color of gold at least on a symbolic level i can kind of get what that's getting at you know that something very attractive and beautiful and oh. that's that's fine but the fact that they're all the same in appearance seems a bit of an odd idea to me um and not and, not on the surface of it particularly attractive yeah and the the, the tw 21st vow uh, says that they're all endowed with the 32 physical characteristics of a great being. Right. And if you put together all of those and try to form a picture in your mind of what it would be like to have those 32 marks, I mean, they're very, it's a very strange being who, who has those marks. I mean, because one of them is, is an inability to, to, to turn the head um, the neck is totally stiff, so that if 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 the uh, if the person who has these thirty-two marks wants to see something, they have to turn their entire body around. This is definitely going more and more sci-fi. This um, this conversation, yeah. Right. There's also the thing about having arms that reach down to their knees or something, or they they can they can rest their their palms on their kneecaps without bending over yeah. and they um they're they're males and, and but they have a uh, their their genitalia are are hidden like a cat you know <laughs> sort of inside their body i mean very much like a cat's uh a tomcat's uh, genitals are okay I inside the body not know that about a tomcat so that's new information <laughs> Yes, I mean, so it's pretty old stuff, obviously, and this comes from the Brahminical tradition, right? Uh, the, right. the idea of the, um, the, 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 is it the Dharma Raja, the, the um, 32 marks of the superior being. So I suppose we'd have to think that what this is about is not, not anything remotely, it's not remotely to be taken literally. Uh, it's more that, let's say, uh, there was this idea 
of what the ideal person was like within this certain culture. And these people are like that. Right. So it's just basically saying they're the best, the best of beings, right? Without right. digging into the details of the total weirdness of what yeah. characteristics are. Um, although, as you know, there are even um, visualization practices um, that uh, that invite you to visualize uh, Amitabha with these characteristics. Right. Right. Uh, Genshin particularly talks, uh, uh, describes those practices and, and recommends them. Right. Uh, which I, I, I expect that that's what we're we're in for if if our next reading is the uh, is the visualization practice. Right. It, right. We'll, we'll be treated to uh, to quite a bit of detail about. Yeah. Whereas if this were written today, it would be every being looks like. Brad Pitt, or you know, right. yeah, I, I was going to say George Clooney, but yeah, um, George Clooney. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be something like that, wouldn't it? So I guess what I'm what I'm uh, struggling a little bit with is I want to try and kind of honor this text, and I want to value it, and I want to um, I want to believe that it's it's teaching me something important. But here we are, kind of analyzing these vows. And in a way, some of them almost seem silly, uh, uh, at least to me, and I, I don't want to just dismiss them. But equally, they do seem quite odd. You know, I can't, I can't deny that they seem quite odd. So I guess it requires us to, to read them in, a, in quite a sympathetic way, quite an imaginative way, and certainly not in a literal way, that's for sure. And I, I suspect that they may have seemed extreme to the Pure Land people as well, because after all they did, um, well, there's 48 vows, but the one that really matters is the 18th or the 19th, you know, depending on, on whether the focus was on being able to see the, the Buddha and, and uh, at, at death to be surrounded by a multitude of sages of death, the people who focused on that practice would take the 19th vow very seriously and Shinran took the 18th as the primal vow. I mean, it's interesting that it even uses that term, the primal, sort of like this is the, this is really the vow. All these others are just kind of, um, you know, corollaries or something like that, <laughs> whatever. It is interesting, and I, I'm, I'm glad you, you're getting onto that, because that was something that was going through my mind today, uh, reading about the 48 vows, more or less, how did it come about that uh, somebody determined or somebody decided that certain of the vows were the key vows, and the 18th vow, as you just said, was the most important. Um, I mean, the, the stuff that I've read suggests uh, that 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 this comes from Tanwan, uh, but also that even earlier than that, these um, uh, these commentaries, particularly I think uh, the commentary that's attributed to uh, Nagarjuna um, about easy practice, touches on them. But but what I've read suggests that Tanwan really was the person who kind of really grabbed hold of the 18th vow and said, look, you know, this is, this is the key, if you like. And then, right. and then after that, uh, 
the exegetical, the exegetical tradition began to expand commentaries based on that assumption. Uh, because Tan, Tan Wan as well determined that the most important of the scriptures is the longest scripture, uh, that the, the scriptures form a kind of whole uh, and that the 18th vow is the key. And um, this was very much what Shinran followed. Um, so from what I've understood, uh, Honin more followed Shandao's line uh, and Shandao's line was actually the key scripture is the contemplation scripture mm -hmm. and that helps to make although he accepted the importance of the 18th vow in the longer uh, the longer scripture he very much uses the contemplation sutra to kind of interpret uh, the longer scripture which is what Honin does Right. Whereas it would seem that Shinran goes in a, in a different direction and basically focuses more on the larger scripture and the 18th vow, as I say, following Tan Luan's analysis. Um, so it seems to be that that's kind of how it how it all started. Um, yeah, but but you know it could equally have been, and I was fantasizing about this earlier. What tradition might have been created? if somebody focused on one of the other vows, you know, one of the different vows or two or three of the others, and put those right in the center of some tradition of practice, you could have formed a kind of uh, pure land practice that was quite different. Right. Uh, for instance, um, I was noticing that the, uh, which vow is this? Um, I think it was the 40, 44th vow. Right, so the 44th vow reads, may I not gain possession of perfect awakening if once I have attained Buddhahood, it is not the case that everyone in the host of Bodhisattvas in the Buddha fields in other regions of the universe beyond the Western region of my pure Buddha land upon hearing my name is filled with joy and enthusiasm, practices the conduct of a Bodhisattva and gains all the roots of virtue. And trying to remember why I thought this was worth underlining. I think it was worth underlining because it doesn't even talk about being born in a pure land as being even relevant. Um, it could be anyone anywhere who hears uh, Amitabha's name. So the key thing there is hearing the name. And then that, uh, that triggers or that initiates um, what well, joy and enthusiasm, but then also uh, transforms the conduct of the bodhisattva. Yeah. So what? what which which vow was that, that you uh, just read? Yeah, according to me, it's the forty-fourth vow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so right. then okay. you could base a whole tradition of practice that's actually based on hearing, not based on chanting. Right. Hearing. Um, and the forty-second so number of vows that emphasize hearing rather than chanting. Uh, yeah. Please continue. Yeah, the, the 42nd is also interesting. Um, if when I attain Buddhahood, I mean, this is the BDK translation, Bodhisattvas in the lands of the other directions who hear my name should not attain, all attain the Samadhi called pure liberation and while dwelling therein should not, without losing concentration, be able to make offerings in one in instant to immeasurable and inconceivable Buddhas. World honored ones, man. So, so that there, the focus is is on a devotional practice, making offerings and and uh, uh, and honoring 
um, all of the um, all of the Buddhas. So yeah, you're right. I mean, I I was really struck at how, given that Shenron acknowledges these three sutras are you know these are the the core of the Pure Land tradition, how very much he had to sort of um, almost ignore by focusing on the 18th vow because the whole contemplation visualization practice is gone. The deathbed practice is gone. I mean, really, he's he's really selected. Yeah. Just that one sutra, not not even you know the, the whole um, second second half of the of the longer sutra where where all of these, you know, the five evils, which undoubtedly he had, you know, whether he knew it was an interpolation, he had it at his disposal. He just really does not pay much attention at all to the vast majority of these three sutras. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the, the reading is kind of highly, highly selective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so rather than maybe like you and me, because we're not steeped in a, a tradition of pure land exegesis, we're reading the text and we see something, we think, oh, that's interesting, or, or that seems to contradict something else. And then right. that calls our attention. I mean, we, we want to investigate it. He clearly was not reading like that. Um, and it seems a bit more like uh, he had an idea of what the text um, text meant uh, uh, and saw in the text the thing, you know, a bit like confirmation bias. You know, he had an idea of what the text was supposed to say. And so he looked within the text for the passages that confirmed that. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, he did even more than that. As we know, he actually then altered the text to, uh, to actually reflect what he thought it was supposed to say. Put it like that, he sounds a bit of a dodgy character, doesn't he? But um, I, I'm not sure that I see it like that. I, I actually find it quite intriguing. Um, uh, surely the same happens with Bible interpretation, you know, that the oh, yeah. people have an idea of what the main message is, and then they just, you know, look at the Gospels or whatever, uh, the New Testament, and then they find little phrases that confirm that reading that they're given to it. So it's not right. not like they just read it openly and just think, okay, what's this? What does this say? You know, what's this? Right. I mean, it, it, it's sort of like uh, American evangelicals of a certain stripe given the entirety of the Bible, I've heard it said that there are two passages that mention homosexuality, but to be a practicing evangelical Christian in the United States, it's like the entire Bible is about you know, the evils of homosexuality. End of story. That's, you know, and, you know I, don't, I don't think that Shinran is anywhere nearly that, at least he's focused on something that's quite positive um, but but it seems like one of you know his contribution is is really to make the entirety of Buddhism accessible to people who are illiterate and don't have time right and so you think that's conscious uh, that's a conscious part of his intention to I, I, I don't I don't that, yeah. that that someone who's illiterate or has very little uh, 
training could could get to grips with that that's your yeah i mean i it's i I don't know whether that was his primary intention but that's certainly the effect that it had is yeah yeah i mean you don't have to go to temples anymore and you don't have to you don't have to have a lot of money to um you know to sponsor the building of a statue or the carving of a statue or even the making of an elaborate scroll you can just have you know the the nembutsu is six characters if you do that that's all you need to do yeah going back to how he he interprets the uh the three scriptures um i'm still trying to formalize my analogy but in my in the introduction to my manuscript i talk about the idea of the jigsaw puzzle right in that analogy i i talk about the idea of uh forcing pieces into the wrong place but actually this i think it would be more correct to say that it's a bit like a situation where you've got a box of jigsaw pieces and you think that they're all for the same jigsaw uh, but actually they're not and somebody's actually bundled together uh, maybe two or three different uh, jigsaw puzzles or pieces from two or three um actually you don't know this um and you have an idea of what you think the image is that the jigsaw is trying to show so then you start putting together the jigsaw, jigsaw pieces not knowing that they belong to different jigsaws right right <laughs> uh, and and uh but with, with with the commitment if you like to thinking that these clearly form a coherent image you know and and that's kind of what he does and so uh he, i mean to take it even further he ends up even cutting pieces of the jigs uh, cutting some of the pieces in order to make them fit yeah or or else maybe another version of that is that he has a box of a thousand pieces or ten thousand pieces. He picks out one, puts it on the table, and says, "There." <laughs> that that shows us, yeah, the image, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, that, so it, uh, there's a process clearly of a lot of selection and a lot of exclusion. And yeah, going back to the forty-eight vows, just reading them this morning it made me realize that I'd never really read them with full attention before, because in a way, what we're invited to do is to pay attention to particular vows that are considered more important than others. Mm -hmm. Uh, But why should they be, you know, why not pay attention to the others? And another vow that I noticed, uh, by the way, was vow 43. I think you were quoting 42, weren't you? I, I, I noticed 43. Mm-hmm. where it says may i not gain possession of perfect awakening if once i have attained buddhahood it is not the case that everyone in the host of bodhisattvas in the buddha fields in other regions of the universe beyond the rest- western region of my pure buddha land upon hearing my name and after their lifespans come to an end will be reborn in noble families so that that caught my attention because if you read vow 22 uh, it actually uh, talks about all the Buddha bodhisattvas from other Buddha fields being reborn in Sukhavati. Right. So there are actually two different ideas there. Yeah. Uh, one one is the idea that 
uh, all bodhisattvas that are in other Buddha lands will be reborn in Sukhavati, which is the superlative, superlative Buddha land. And another one that says a different idea that says all bodhisattvas will be reborn in noble families. Right. They're actually quite, well, they, they seem to me to be quite contradictory vows. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, the VDK uh, translation is much less wordy. It just says, if when I attain Buddhahood, bodhisattvas in the lands of the other directions who hear my name should not be reborn into noble families after death, may I not attain perfect enlightenment. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. Gosh, I, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, notice that. I, I have a, I have a, um, I have a, a, a reader that enables me to, to mark up um, text, and I had highlighted all kinds of passages in this that I wanted to discuss, and somehow they've disappeared, which is annoying, but um, it's probably just as well because it forces me to go through it yet again. <laughs> but yeah, I, I hadn't, I hadn't really noticed the the way in which that's that is apparently contradictory i mean that and and this is this is something that happens to bodhisattvas in lands in other directions and so these aren't the bodhisattvas in sukhavati these are bodhisattvas in other in other buddha lands right um and what is what is the relationship between all of these other buddha lands that seem to to occur in in this enormous abundance uh, and the relation to them and um the sahaloka the sahaloka has yeah. has all six realms in it right and do i i guess all these other buddha lands don't i mean they, they there's no birth there, there don't seem to be any animal realm or hungry ghosts or hell realms um, I don't know if anywhere it's clearly mentioned a virtue or a quality that Sukhavati has that other pure lands do not have. Uh, I'm not aware of that, but maybe that is mentioned. Uh, it's a bit of a confusing thing, isn't it? Because the in one place uh, you you hear talk about uh, these Buddha lands, amazing Buddha lands. But then at the same time, Sukhavati is like the, the epitome of all the Buddha lands uh, and somehow better than all of them. But it's not clear exactly in what way. Right. Um, so does that then indicate that there are different grades of pure lands? Um, I'm not really sure. Yeah. 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 There is, there, there's, a, uh, there's a collection of um, Mahayana sutras that were translated from Chinese that um, it's in that series that has, they have a, a yellow, a yellow cover. And, and uh, there are a number of, a number of translations from the Chinese that were in, in that. And there is, there is a, a, a description of the Eastern Pure Land. No, I mean, yeah, the Eastern Pure Land. So this is the Pure Land in the West. And who is the Eastern? Uh, yeah. Exhobia, isn't it? So that's yeah. Ratti. Yeah, are you talking about the Ratnakuta Sutras? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I've got that. And yeah, you're right. There's there's um, the Exhobia Vyuha Sutra, which is an account of Exhobia's Pure Land. Right, right. Collection. There's also 
uh, a description of Manjushri's pure lands. Uh, and Manjushri turns out to be the only ever Bodhisattva to be attributed a pure land, um, mm. which is in there, yeah. But when you read the descriptions, I mean, they're all very generic um, about the pure land, which is why I struggle to understand the difference, if you like, between Sukhavati and any other pure land. And while it asserts that it's better than the others and these essence of all the others, it's not clear in what way that is the case, you know, what that actually means. Right. Um, yeah, but maybe it's, well, it's probably not something that's supposed to be um, investigated, you know, maybe, maybe we should understand it more rhetorically uh, in the sense that uh, it's wanting to assert that uh, that Sukhavati is the best of its kind, um, there's nothing yeah. better. It, it could be that it's it's identical to, to all of the other pure lands, except that it has this one quality, which is the quality of being better. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, the contradiction as well I pointed to may well, again, underlie the fact, underline the fact, sorry, that these vows were not created all at the same time uh, and that they uh, grew and people added additional vows in. Uh, in fact, uh, according to Gomez, the 22nd vow that I mentioned um, about, was it the 22nd? Yeah, the 22nd vow, um, he thinks was, was added in later um, to as a kind of, um, uh, to assuage the mainstream Mahayana perspective. Um, uh, yeah. Right. It's a quite complex matters, I guess. Yeah. The 22nd, according to what I'm reading here, says, may I not gain, may I not gain Buddhahood if it is not the case that all the assemblies of Bodhisattvas in the Buddha fields in the other nine regions of the universe gain rebirth in my land and there reach the culmination of the Bodhisattva path, attaining without fail the stage in which only one birth separates them from full, full, from full Buddhahood. I mean, another question I had about that is that, so if one, only one birth separates them from full Buddhahood, in what world do they become fully enlightened? Right. Actually elsewhere, the vows make it, seem to make it clear that full enlightenment takes place in Sukhavati. Right. Um, so I found that a bit confusing as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that um, uh, Gomez argues that this is sort of uh, presenting the general Mahayana idea that you become reborn in your final life, if you like, and then become a Buddha like the Buddha did um, and reveal the Dharma to all beings. Thank you.